0: i'm looking forward to continuing on in our series out of control and we're talking about the life of joseph and uh, i'm so thankful uh, for what god is teaching me and uh, what is god is god is teaching our church in this season and so i'm looking forward to diving into god's word today you can go ahead and find a seat this morning If you have a Bible today, we're gonna be in Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42 is where we're gonna be today. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the seat back in front of you this morning. And if you don't own a Bible, that Bible is our gift to you. And I wanna encourage you to keep your Bible ready and open today as we study this chapter together and the next phase in this narrative of the life of Joseph. How many of you have been here for the majority of this series. Can I see your hands this morning? And uh, we've been studying the life of jo- Joseph and how God is always in control even when the circumstances of life are out of control. And I don't know about you, but that's encouraging to me because sometimes I read the news and then I have to just close down the app because I don't want to read anymore. And it seems like the world is just out of control, but our God is always sovereign. He is always reigning. He's always in control because he's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He's the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Nothing takes him by surprise. Come on, is anybody thankful today that we worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? I think that's worth waking up for on Time Change Sunday. We're smiling about too. Genesis chapter 42. Let's jump into the text today. The Bible says this. Now when Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said unto his sons, why do ye look one upon another? Jacob looks at his... Family, the father of Joseph, this patriarch that received a covenant from God, and he's looking at his family and saying, Why are you just looking at each other? Verse 2 And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is corn in Egypt. Get you down thither and buy for us from thence, that we may live and not die. And Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt, but Benjamin, Joseph's brother, his blood brother, Jacob sent not with his brethren, for he said, Lest peradventure mischief befall him. And the sons of Israel came to buy corn among those that came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. And so, if there was a famine in Egypt, the famine was far worse in the land of Canaan. And we saw last week, if you are here last week, that Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dreams and said that there was going to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And so when we come to Genesis chapter 42, we are in uh, perhaps year two of the famine. So they've already experienced the seven years of plenty. They've already experienced the blessings uh, of the provision of those years. And now they're in the midst of the famine. Verse number six. And Joseph was the governor over the land, and he it was that sold to all the people of the land And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth, which was a fulfillment of the first dream that Joseph had 20 years prior. Today, for a few minutes, I want to speak to this subject. Something has to change. Something has to change. Let's have a word of prayer together. God, thank you so much for this day that you've given us. God, thank you for the opportunity that we have to come together and to worship you on a weekly basis and God I pray that we would strive today to keep a holy focus and attention on your word and God I pray that we would recognize that your word is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword and God I pray that we would recognize today that your word has the power to transform us from the inside out and God I pray that we would uh, seek to have an understanding of what this passage means and how it applies to our lives today and so, Lord, we're believing uh, that you have great purpose and meaning for us this morning, and uh, we love you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said this morning, amen. How many of you have ever started a workout routine that didn't last? Anybody like that? Started a workout routine, that it didn't last. Uh, I remember Katie and I, when we first got married, we decided that we were going to do P90X. How many of you remember P90X, right? And uh, we decided we're going to take this serious. We're going to do P90X. We got the DVDs. We got all the things that we needed. The night before, we went to Target. We bought weights. We bought a little yoga mat. We bought a pull-up bar. We bought some water bottles. We were going to take this serious. And I remember talking with Katie the night before, and I said, We're going to have to hold each other accountable in this and uh, if we're going to take this serious and if we're going to get in shape we're going to have to hold each other accountable and push each other and she said okay and we were ready to go the next morning came we plugged the dvds in everything was going great for about 20 minutes and uh, then i started to feel extremely fatigued i was out of breath i was uh, kind of kneeled over and i was struggling in that workout and i looked behind me and katie was sitting on the couch with her brand-new water bottle from Target, just taking slow sips, watching me uh, work out. And, and I looked at Katie, and I said, Katie, what are you, you know, come on, you got to help me and uh, hold me accountable. And she said, just give me a minute. And I said, okay, you know what, uh, even if no one does this with me, I'm going to finish this workout. And so I started, and I lasted about five more minutes. And I was kneeled over like this, completely out of breath, doing this uh, DVD workout program. And Katie came up behind me when I was kneeled over, and she patted me on the back, and she said, it's okay, you tried. And uh, that is not what I wanted to hear in that moment. And uh, it's okay, you tried. And uh, that was supposed to last 90 days. We did not even make it 90 minutes. And uh, how many of you know that if you are going to experience physical change, it's going to require some discipline, right? It's going to require some intentionality. And uh, it is often very difficult to experience physical change. Uh, Daniel told me a couple years ago that he read that it is harder to get a six-pack of abs than it is to get a million dollars. Now, I don't know if that's true. I don't have either one of those things. But uh, uh, the point is physical change is very difficult, right? And as hard as it is to change on the outside, often it seems it is infinitely more hard and more difficult to change something that is on the inside, whether it is lust that you are battling or an anger issue that you have or maybe some resentment or bitterness that you carry within, Uh, perhaps it is jealousy or envy that you carry within. I'm sure that all of us could think of some things, some internal issues that we would like to change, that we would like to see uh, be different. But change is not always easy. Change can be very difficult. Now, uh, the greatest change foundationally to a subject like this, the greatest change that we could ever experience is when we invite Jesus Christ into our lives and experience the change that occurs at salvation. The Bible says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. At the moment of salvation, you became a brand new person, out with the old and in with the new. You did not just simply become a better version of yourself. You became a brand new you at the moment of salvation. And this is a wonderful reality that we can come to terms to, that the moment that you prayed and received Jesus Christ as your Savior, in that moment is what we would call justification. The word justification means to be declared righteous, uh, just as if you'd never sin. Uh, God, as a holy judge, declared you righteous in the sight of a holy God. That is justification, and that is the first uh, step in salvation, that we are justified before a holy God. But then we also recognize that we then begin the process that is called sanctification. And sanctification is the process of becoming more like Christ. It's the process of being set apart. Uh, That's what the word sanctified means, to be set apart, to be different, uh, to become more like Christ. Uh, Paul talked about this sanctification process in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And he says this, and be not conformed. The word conform means to be patterned after. And so he says, Don't be patterned after the world. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed, changed, different by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Notice how spiritual change and spiritual transformation is not optional. Be ye transformed. You will be changed. Change is an imperative. Be ye transformed. In other words, Paul was saying something has to change. If you follow Jesus Christ and if you have given your life to Christ, something has to change. That is why Katie and I, when we started this church, we prayed and we labored over the mission statement of what this church would be driven by. And the mission statement is reaching people with the life-giving and then the life-changing message of Jesus. Can I tell you today, God loves you too much to leave you the same. It's the reaching people, with the life-giving and the life-changing message of Jesus. The gospel by nature is transformative. We will be different. There will be change. Philippians 1.6 says this, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Will perform it until that day. It's an ongoing process of sanctification, being changed into his image, becoming more like Christ. But this kind of spiritual transformation and this kind of spiritual change is not instantaneous, it's incremental, it's step by step. And when we come to Genesis chapter 42 today and we continue this narrative uh, of this Old Testament patriarch, Joseph, as we continue the study of his life, what we're going to see in Genesis chapter 42 is incremental life change that takes place in his family. Now, it's not a dramatic conversion. It's not Paul on the road to Damascus, Saul on the road to Damascus, and it's not a very dramatic scene. But what we start to see is incremental change. What we start to see is a family that is going to be transformed uh, by God Almighty. And in this text, as we see this incremental change that takes place in the lives of Joseph's brothers, what I'd like to do for us for a few minutes today is I'd like to give us three principles that will help us experience lasting change. How many of you are interested in becoming more like Christ in that transformation process? And so today I wanna give us three principles that will help us experience not just short-term change, but lasting change for the glory of God. Here's the first principle today, are you ready? Number one is this, life change does not happen in the realm of indecision. Life change does not happen in the realm of indecision let's pick up our text in verse number one today the bible says this now when jacob saw that there was corn in egypt jacob said unto his sons why do ye look one upon the other and he said behold i have heard that there is corn in egypt get you down thither and buy for us from thence that we may live and not die And so here they are, they're struggling in the middle of a famine, and Jacob, the father, is looking at his sons, and they're not doing anything. Everyone's kind of looking at each other. No one's uh, taking any action. So Jacob says, why are you just looking at one another? Uh, Someone needs to go and get us food and buy us corn from Egypt. Now, this is an example of a family that had big problems, but nobody wanted to talk about it. Nobody wanted to address the issue. Uh, Nobody liked confrontation. Nobody wanted to step on anybody's toes. No one wanted to feel uncomfortable. And so they all were very well aware of the problem, but nobody wanted to say anything. And and Jacob, as the father, is looking at his full-grown sons with their extended family saying, why are you just looking at each other? We need food or we're going to die. And what we see so desperately uh, needed in this passage all throughout Genesis chapter 42 is someone to step up and be a leader. Someone to volunteer and say, you know what, Uh, I can go. Someone to say, I can be the leader. Someone to say, I can make a decision. Because you will never experience the blessings from God if you are operating in the realm of indecision. Where I'm just kind of waiting for the perfect conditions to step out and to serve. And I'm just kind of waiting to see uh, what's going to happen. And then uh, I'll make a decision. And so often we are stuck in this uh, state of indecision. The Bible says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse number 4. He that observeth the wind shall not sow, and he that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. Solomon in all his wisdom says, you know what? If all you do is sit back and you observe the wind, and you're going to look at the clouds, I wonder if it's going to rain, but you never sow, then you're not going to reap. At some point, there has to be a decision. At some point, there has to be action. And Jacob was saying, why are you just looking at one another? Somebody needs to do something. Did you know that there are some things spiritually that you do not have to pray long and hard over? There are some things that the Bible is pretty clear about. Uh, You don't have to pray long and hard about if you should invite a friend to church. The Bible just says to share our faith, to be salt and light. Uh, The Bible tells us to do that. You don't have to pray long and hard about if God wants you to serve Newsflash, hate to break it to you, he wants you to serve. There are certain things that we don't have to sit back and pray long and hard over. We can just obey. We can just follow what God has told us to do. Now, I'm not saying that we're hasty in making decisions. I'm not saying that we should be unwise in making decisions. But if you are serious about following Jesus and being changed into his image, you have to refuse to stay in the realm of indecision. It's easy to talk about the problems in life, very easy. It's very easy for us to talk about politics and very easy to talk about how the world is so messed up. It's very easy to talk about how bad the famine is. It's a whole different story to say, here am I. I will go. I'll, I'll do something. Jacob says, guys, we're starving to death. Someone should do something. They were operating in the realm of indecision. And we will never experience the blessings of God if we are constantly in that waiting zone Uh, to quote the greatest showman uh, what's waited for tomorrow starts tonight we have to move forward we have to make a decision notice what it says in verse 3 everybody still with me this morning notice verse 3 and joseph's 10 brethren went down to buy corn in egypt but benjamin joseph's brother jacob sent not with his brethren for he said lest peradventure mischief befall him i believe that this was a mistake Jacob had already been hurt because Joseph, he thought, was dead. And Now his other son that was born of his favorite wife, Rachel, whom he loved, who he worked seven years for and then seven more years and was tricked by Uncle Laban. He, he loved Rachel. Rachel gave birth to Joseph and then gave birth to Benjamin. And so when Joseph was lost, now his favorite son was Benjamin. And, and, and Jacob struggled with showing favoritism, and he didn't want Benjamin to be hurt. And so he says, you stay here with me. You can't go. Everybody else can go. And if danger uh, happens to fall upon them, so be it. But you, Benjamin, you've got to stay with me. And what we see is an example of an overprotective parent. But the danger of overprotective parenting is the Bible says in Ephesians 6, 4, that you can provoke your children to wrath if there's such a tight, tight grip. And, and uh, I'm not going to let you do anything. I'm not going to let you go anywhere. And he was saying, no, you have to stay Stay here. We're going to see uh, where this even leads Jacob and how closely he was willing to keep Benjamin close. Even if it meant the rest of his family starved to death, he was going to keep Benjamin close. Notice verse number five. And the sons of Israel, Israel was the covenant name for Jacob. Uh, Israel uh, came to buy corn. Among those that came for the famine was in the land of Canaan, and Joseph was the governor over the land. And he was sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to The earth, And so Joseph's brothers arrived, and it just so happened that they arrived at the station where Joseph was operating from. Now, undoubtedly, Joseph was a very important person. He was not the one uh, overseeing every single transaction of grain, uh, right? There was many different places that you could go and get food in Egypt, and it just so happens that the brothers show up right at the place where Joseph was operating. And what we see is another example uh, of the divine providence of God at work. How many of you know that God is working through ordinary means and ordinary details to accomplish his extraordinary purpose? And it might have just seemed like, oh, this is just happenstance, that we just happened to go on the day that Joseph was serving. But no, God was orchestrating every detail in this narrative. The brothers show up, and uh, they bow down themselves before Joseph, uh, fulfilling that first dream that Joseph dreamed 20 years ago in Genesis chapter 37. Now, notice verse number 7. And Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them. But he made himself strange unto them and spake roughly unto them. And he said unto them, Whence come ye? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew not him. And so Joseph recognizes his brothers, but the brothers don't recognize him. Remember, this was uh, 20 years had passed since the last time they saw Joseph. Joseph would have looked a lot different. As customary in Egypt, he would have shaved his head. He would have been speaking the Egyptian language through an interpreter. And so they don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. And the Bible says that Joseph speaks to them roughly. And he's doing this to test them. It's interesting that Joseph does not reveal himself to the brothers right away. And we're going to see for a couple chapters, he does not reveal himself to his brothers. And the reason he does this is to test them to see if there had been life change. Are these the same evil, wicked men that sold me into slavery? Or have they experienced some sort of transformation? I believe that Joseph already forgave them, but now he's going to test them to see if he can trust them. There's a big difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness says, I forgive you. You can do that in a moment, in an instant. We can forgive the inexcusable in others because Christ has forgiven the inexcusable in us. Forgiveness says, I forgive you. Reconciliation says, I forgive you. Now I can trust you. And Joseph was going to see if he could trust his brothers. He's going to see, is there anything different about them? And that leads us to our second principle today, and that is this. Life change is not something that we declare. It's something that we demonstrate. Life change is not something that we just say, I'm changed, I, I, I'm different. It's something that we demonstrate. Uh, every day we will pick up our kids from school. Katie will pick up the kids from school, or I'll we'll pick up the kids from school, and we always ask them the same question How was your day? And typically we'll get a, a very similar response. They will say, It was good, good day. Uh, when my son was in uh, kindergarten, when my son Luke was in kindergarten, uh, we picked him up, and Katie said, How was your day today, Luke? And he said, It was great. I got to sit by my friend all day, and I even got my scissors back. And we thought, why did you have to get your scissors taken away in the first place, right? And uh, he thought everything was great, and everything was great, but uh, we found out that some other things had happened, right? And uh, uh, sometimes we are quick to say, yeah, things are great. I'm good. Everything is good. Uh, But our lives and our actions would often say something else. There's a big difference between what we profess and what we practice. And so many followers of Jesus will profess something, but they're not practicing it. And it's actually a very dangerous place to be. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 7, verse number 21, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Not everyone that knows the lingo knows Jesus. And so we have to be very careful that we are not just professing something that we do not Practice, and this is what Joseph is going to see. Are they just saying something, or is their actual life changed? Let's pick it up in verse number 9. It says this, And Joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed of them, and said unto them, You are spies to see the nakedness of the land. You are come. And so Joseph says, no, you are spies. Now, this was in part Joseph's job. Uh, His job was to make sure that neighboring nations were not coming in and uh, just trying to steal money from Egypt or steal grain from Egypt. And so he says to the brothers, no, you are spies. You're just coming to check out the land, verse number 10. And they said unto him, nay, my lord, but to buy food are thy servants come. Uh, We're not spies, verse number 11. We are all one man's sons. Watch this. We are true men. We are honest and true men. Thy servants are no spies, and he said to them, "Nay, but to see the nakedness of the land, ye are come." And so they say, "No, no, no, uh, 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 sir, we are true and honest men." And I wonder if, upon hearing that, Joseph maybe threw up in his mouth a little bit. True and honest men. He knew their real character. He knew that they were murderers. Joseph's brothers murdered all the males in Shechem. They were murderers. They were adulterers. They were kidnappers. They were liars. Joseph knew who they were, but they said, we are true and honest men. Now, in fairness, that was a long time ago. And so Joseph wants to see, okay, that was them. Are they different? Has there been some life change? They are declaring something, but have they demonstrated life change? Because there's a big difference between declaring something and demonstrating something. And so he wants to test them. Uh, Charles Ryle said this, an old and common sin is profession without practice. So notice what Joseph does, verse 13. And they said, Thy servants are twelve brethren, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father. Now, who's that? That's Benjamin, right? Uh, Benjamin is back home. The youngest is with the father. And one is not. Who's that? Joseph. He said, one is no longer with us. Well, Joseph knew who they were talking about. That was him. Uh, They didn't realize who they were speaking to. Uh, uh, One is not with us. Verse 14. Verse 14. And Joseph said unto them, this uh, is that that I spake unto you, saying, you are spies.' So Joseph kind of holds his ground. He says, nope, you're spies. Uh, Verse 15, hereby ye shall be proved. You're going to be tested to see if you can be trusted uh, by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go forth hence except your youngest brother come hither. He says, I want to see if I can trust you, and I'm not going to trust you until I see uh, your youngest brother. Uh, Joseph knew who that was. It was Benjamin. Verse 16, send one of you and let him fetch your brother. And ye shall be kept in prison, that your words may be proved, whether there be any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, uh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together into the ward three days. And so he sequestered them uh, for three days. They're put into this ward. They're put into this prison, so to speak. And Joseph wants to see, is anyone going to volunteer to be the one to go back and to get Benjamin? Is anyone going to step up and be the leader? Is anyone going to say, I'll go, I'll go get Benjamin? Notice verse 14, verse 18, excuse me. And Joseph said unto them the third day, This do and live, for I fear God, Elohim. Now, if they were paying attention, this was a hint, right? Uh, The Pharaoh, uh, the Egyptian leaders wouldn't say, I fear God. They believed that they were a God. And so he says, I I fear God. If the brothers were paying attention, this was a hint, but it went right over their heads. They didn't get it. Verse 19 And if ye be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison. Go ye, carry corn uh, for the famine of your house. But bring your youngest brother unto me, uh, so shall your words be verified, and ye shall not die. And they did so. And so Joseph changes the plans. He says, Instead of all of you, uh, or instead of one of you going back to get Benjamin, I'm going to keep one of you. And the rest of you can go back and uh, you can get Benjamin and you can come back here. Why is Joseph doing all this? Why all the rigmarole? Again, he wants to see if he can trust them. He wants to see if there's been any change in them. Interestingly, when the brothers go back and they tell Jacob the plan, they say, hey, uh, we met this man. He told us that we needed to bring back Benjamin. Neither Jacob nor Benjamin wanted to go along with the plan because they didn't trust the brothers. Those closest to the brothers didn't trust them. It's one thing to put on a show at church. It's one thing to fool people at a distance, but are those closest to you aware of the life change that's happening in your life? Are the people in your family, are the people that know you best, are they seeing a change? Are they seeing a difference? Because uh, Jacob, he didn't trust his sons, and, and he did not want to uh, go on with this plan. The Bible says this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their In other words, it's not just knowing the right verbiage, it's not just knowing the Christian lingo, it's not just dressing a certain way. There has to be real transformation that takes place on the inside, that is evident on the outside, and that is why Paul said in Philippians to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, uh, that you should work it out, that you should show that you are a follower of Jesus. And so life change is not just simply about something that we declare. We don't just say we're true and honest men. It's something that we demonstrate. And this leads us to the third thought today. Number three, life change happens when we allow God to awaken our conscience. Life change can truly happen when we allow God to awaken our conscience. How many of you are familiar with the old advice, let your conscience be your guide? Jiminy Cricket, anyone? I have a, I have a small clip for us today, I believe, from Jiminy Cricket. Take the straight and narrow path, and if you start to slide, give a little whistle, give a little whistle. And always let your conscience be your guide. Now can we all just acknowledge say that Pinocchio is one of the creepiest Disney movies that there is out there? I watched that and I was like, what in the world? And, uh, and uh, kind of an eerie uh, movie, scary movie there, Pinocchio. And uh, Jiminy Cricket, though, that was his advice. Always let your conscience be your guide. Well, that adage is only partway correct. It's only partly correct. Because uh, to let your conscience be your guide can lead to moral relativism. Whatever you, whatever you think on the inside, whatever, whatever uh, you think is right or wrong, you just go ahead and do that and just kind of follow your heart and follow your conscience and it and, uh, can lead to subjectivism. And so what we have to recognize is your conscience should be shaped and molded and nurtured by the word of God. When you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as Colossians says, and when you uh, start to think and develop the mind of Christ, and and then your conscience is shaped uh, by scripture, then it can truly be your guide in life. But it's filtered through the word of God. And and so we're going to see that God is going to start to work in the consciences of the brothers of Joseph. Now, if anyone struggled with conscience, it was Joseph's brothers. I mean, they did all kinds of evil things. Uh, they, they murdered uh, all the males in that town. When they sold Joseph into slavery and threw him into a pit, they went and had lunch while they listened to their brother scream and plead for his life, and they didn't even feel a thing. Uh, if anyone had a seared conscience, it was these brothers. But God is going to start to do a work in their hearts, and their consciences are going to be awakened. And I believe that God will use two things to awaken our consciences to, uh, this morning. Number one is he will use the guilt of past sin. The guilt of passing. Notice verse number 21. Everybody sit with me today. Verse 21. And they said one to another, watch this, we are verily guilty. We are verily guilty. This is a big deal. We are guilty, verse 21, concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul. When he besought us, when he begged us for his life, and we would not hear, therefore is this distress come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child. He's like, I told you so. Reuben was unstable as water. He was always back and forth. He said, Didn't I tell you? And you would not hear. Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them through an interpreter. And so Reuben is saying, now is the reckoning. Now we're going to have to answer for his blood. Now, Now remember, this is some 20 years later, and God is pricking their conscience. Can I tell you that time does not always heal all wounds? And it's not just simply the length of time that will erase a guilty conscience. They never forgot for a moment what they did to their brother. It haunted them every day. They, they always remembered what they did to Joseph. Now, 20 years later, they are experiencing this difficulty where this man that they don't recognize in Egypt is saying, one of you has to stay here and you have to go get your brothers. And they're saying, we are guilty about what we did 20 years ago. There are so many people today that are living with the past guilt or the past shame of what they have done, and it is holding them back, and it is something that they carry for years and for years. David talked about this, carrying this this weight of shame, and he said it it actually caused him to be sick physically. In Psalm 32, verse number 3, David said this, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer, Selah. He said, it's making me sick physically. It's weighing on me. And I just want to encourage you today that if you are dealing with the guilt of past sin or the shame of your past, I want you to know that there is cleansing that is available in Jesus Christ. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David said in Psalm 51, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to the word of God. There is freedom, and there is a peace that passes all understanding, a freedom from guilt and a freedom from shame that is only found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And here are the brothers, and they are verily guilty. Here's what's so astounding about that. This is the first time they acknowledge their sin, that they acknowledge their wrongdoing. And watch this. One commentator, H.C. Leupold, points out, this is the only acknowledgement of sin in the entire book of Genesis. Why? Because we as humans don't like to acknowledge when we are wrong. We do not like to admit when we sin, when we fall, when we make a mistake. Our pride doesn't want to allow us to acknowledge that. But you will never experience life change if you stay stuck in pride and stuck in shame and stuck and being stuck in your past and not moving forward in the freedom that God has for us through the forgiveness of sins. And so here are the brothers and they say, we are guilty. They acknowledge their sin. Notice verse 24. And he, Joseph, turned himself about from them, and he wept. But I want you to see something interesting here. Joseph, he's overcome with emotion, and so he turns himself aside, and he goes, and he weeps. I believe it's very interesting that Joseph is in control of his emotions, that he doesn't just burst out in emotions here in this moment, but he goes off in private, and he weeps. This is something that he does multiple times in the narrative, as we'll see, that Joseph is overcome with emotion, but he's in so control of his emotions that he goes aside, he does not allow people to see him in that state. You know, the Bible says this in Proverbs sixteen thirty two: he that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh the city. When you can control your spirit, Joseph had emotions, Emotions in and of themselves are not wrong, but when you allow those emotions to take the driver's seat, that is when you are headed for devastation. Joseph was overcome with emotion, but he didn't post about it on Facebook. He was overcome with emotion, but he didn't put those people on blast. He was in control of his spirit. And I believe today what we're missing so often amongst followers of Jesus is those that can learn to control their spirit. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, control my anger control my emotions in front of other people. And so uh, he turns aside, verse 24, and he returned to them again and communed with them and took from them Simeon and bound him before their eyes. And so he takes Simeon. Simeon was somewhat of a ringleader back in Genesis 37 when they sold Joseph into slavery. And he puts Simeon in prison. And the Bible says that he does this in front of their eyes. And Joseph is making them watch the same thing that happened to him happened to Simeon. To quote Michael Scott, oh, how the turntables. Joseph is exposing their sin, exposing the wrong that they did to him. And now it's happening to to Simeon. You know, God will often do this. He will often mirror our sin to expose our sin. You remember when David sinned with Bathsheba and David lied about it and David tried to cover it up and it ended up murdering Uriah? How many of you are familiar with the story? Well, God sent a prophet named Nathan to go and to confront David. But Nathan doesn't just show up right away and say, thou art the man, David. He does say that eventually, but that's not where it starts. Nathan goes and he tells David a story. He tells David a parable he talks about how a lamb was, 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 was killed and, and an innocent lamb was, was murdered. And David was outraged at that. That appealed to the emotions of David. He was a shepherd. He said, how dare someone kill that lamb? How dare someone kill uh, that sheep? How, how could they do that? And then Nathan says, David, thou art the man. David, that's you. He, he used a story to expose his sin. And now the brothers are watching in horror. As Simeon has to stay behind, as they leave, Simeon stays in prison. They're watching the very thing that they did to their brother. This is what the Bible says in James chapter 1, verse 23. For if any be a hearer of the word, the word of God, and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in a glass. In other words, he's like a man that looks in the mirror. How many of you looked in the mirror this morning when you got ready? Anybody? All right, a lot of you didn't raise your hand and I'm hoping that you did. How many of you looked in the mirror this morning when you got ready? Okay, uh, he, he, James says, uh, beholdeth himself, he beholds himself, and then he goes his way and straightway, right away, forgets what manner of man he was. And so he's saying, if you're gonna read the Bible, and you're gonna read it and not do anything about it, that's like looking in the mirror and seeing everything that needs to be corrected and saying, oh, well, and just leaving and not ch- making any changes. He's saying we've gotta be a doer of the word. And, and so he's talking about the mirror of God's word. He says, but whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. The word of God is like a mirror and it will expose us in our sin. It will confront us. A lot of times we approach God's word, what can I get out of it? When we should approach God's word, what can I give? What can I sacrifice? What can I change? Uh, How can I be transformed today? So the word of God will expose us and confront us in our sin. And that's what's happening to the brothers. They're watching this take place with Simeon. And so guilt awakened their conscience. But I want you to see, secondly, grace awakened their conscience. Notice verse 25. Then Joseph commanded to fill their sacks with corn and to restore every man's money into his sack and to give them provision for the way. And thus he did unto them. Now they didn't deserve any of those things. Right? They didn't deserve those things. They deserved imprisonment. They deserved retribution. They didn't deserve grain and corn and they didn't deserve uh their money back and provisions for the journey. They didn't deserve those things. It would have been very natural for Joseph to just want to get even. It would be very natural for Joseph just to say, you know, I'm gonna get a little bit of revenge. It would have been natural for Joseph to say, I'm not gonna give you anything. You can go on your way. Aren't you thankful that grace enables us to do what is unnatural? The Bible says this in Titus chapter 2, verse number 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Anybody thankful for that? That the grace of God is available for all men? Watch this. Teaching us. The grace of God teaches us and enables us, empowers us, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Joseph here is demonstrating great grace. He gives them provision, money. He gives them their money back. He says, not only am I going to fill all of your sacks, but I'm going to give your money back. Joseph is demonstrating the amazing grace of our God. And here's what I love about this scene. Joseph did not keep a list of wrongdoings. Joseph didn't keep a list of everybody that wronged him. Joseph very easily could have kept a list. And he could have thought, you know what? There's been a lot of people that have been unfair to me. Starting with my father, I didn't ask for that coat. He was showing me favoritism. That ended up leading me to much pain. And so he could have been bitter towards his father. He certainly could have been bitter towards his brothers. Judah, it was his idea to sell me into slavery, and Reuben and Simeon, they were all in on this, and they wanted to, to get rid of me. They wanted to kill me. He could have been mad, and he could have written up Potiphar's name down. Potiphar didn't trust me. He could have written Potiphar's wife's name down. She lied about me. She falsely accused me. He could have written the butler's name down. He could have written the baker's name down. Hey, they forgot all about me. Joseph could have, could have kept a list of wrongdoings. And so often in our lives, what we do is we keep lists. That person offended me two years ago. And until they say sorry, I'm not going to speak to them. That person gave me a dirty look, and I won't forget it. You know, we, we are so quick to keep lists. Even in the context of marriage, we keep lists. Didn't dig out the trash, left the toothpaste out, forgot my anniversary three years ago. Write it down. It's on the list. We are so quick to keep lists. We are list-keeping, fault-finding, grace-lacking followers of Jesus. But how many of you know the Bible says that love keeps no record of wrong? Jesus is our ultimate example in this. The Bible says this in Colossians 2.13. And you, being dead in your sins... In the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together. He made you alive with him, having forgiven you of all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. That damning document of sin that that kept a list of all of our sins. He blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. He took it out of the way and he nailed it to the cross. Is anybody thankful today that God does not keep a list of our sins? And when he looks at us, he does not see our sin. He sees his son, Jesus Christ. And so today, if you don't hear anything else, hear this lose the list. Let's operate with grace, let's be quick to forgive. It's easy to be a fault finder. It's much more difficult to be a grace giver. Joseph could have looked at the list of everyone that wronged him saying, I'm not going to be kind to you. I'm not going to give you food. I'm certainly not going to give you extra money and extra provision for the way. But that's exactly what he does. He shows grace. Now the brothers travel and they stop one night on their way home and they open up their bags and they see the money and they're overcome with fear. And they're thinking, man, uh, they're going to think that we stole this money. They're going to think we didn't pay for the grain so they're overcome with fear. Notice verse 28. And he said unto his brethren, my money is restored and lo, it is even in my sack, and their heart failed them. And they were afraid. Uh, that phrase uh, is used elsewhere in Scripture to talk about an earthquake, that their heart overwhelmed them. They were trembling. They were, they were scared out of their minds. Verse 28. Saying one to another, watch this, what is this? That God hath done to us. Watch this. There's incremental change that's happening in the lives of Joseph's brothers. Watch this. They're starting to ask the right questions. What is God teaching us? What is God doing in this situation? So often our question is: why and when? And what if we started to ask, what is God teaching me in this adversity? What is God teaching me in this season? When you're scared, when you're overwhelmed, when you are filled with anxiety. What is God trying to teach you? What lesson is there to be had in that moment? The brothers start to ask the right questions. What is God teaching us? Now, they get home, they go to Jacob, and they tell them the whole story. They tell Jacob and Benjamin everything that happened. We met this man, he told us that we needed to bring Benjamin back, and then we found extra money in our sacks, and they, they tell Jacob the whole story. Notice how Jacob responds. Verse 36. And Jacob their father said unto them, Me, have ye bereaved of my children? Joseph is not and now Simeon is not because you left Simeon back in Egypt and you will take Benjamin away? All these things are against me. And Jacob here is indicative of so many of us that it's all about me and my struggles and the world is against me. Nobody knows what I'm going through. I'm hurting. Nobody understands. Everything is against me. Little did Jacob know, not everything was against him, but all of those things were actually God working for him. God was using those circumstances to actually bring about salvation for him and his whole family. And he is here sitting thinking, everything is against me when actually God is for him. Can I tell you today that God is for you? He's not against you. And you might be wondering, why is this happening? And you might be overwhelmed with fear or discouragement, or you are struggling with anxiety, thinking that it's you against the world, but make no mistake about it, the God of the universe that created you, that loves you, he is not against you. He is for you. (laughs) Jacob says, everybody's against me, but God was for him. Notice verse 37. And Reuben spake unto his father, saying, Slay my two sons. What? If I bring him not to thee. Deliver him into my hand, and I will bring him to thee again. Reuben kind of steps up, and he kind of puts on a show. Now, remember, Reuben was unstable. Reuben was always up and down. And he says, If we don't bring Benjamin back, then you can kill my two sons. What a terrible, horrible suggestion. What good would Killing two innocent boys, do if he lost Benjamin, Reuben steps up, gives a terrible suggestion, verse thirty-eight, and he said, "My son, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. He believed Joseph to be dead, and he is left alone. If mischief befall him by the way in which you he, he shall go, then ye shall bring down my grey hairs with sorrow to the grave." He says, "Benjamin must be protected, even if the whole family." starves simeon we might not ever see him again but benjamin he's staying now can we all agree that this family is far from perfect this family had some struggles this family had some drama and yet in chapter 42 we start to see the beginning where god is working change in their hearts and in their lives it's not huge it's not dramatic but it's incremental change they're starting to acknowledge their guilt they're starting to acknowledge their sin they're starting to ask the right questions. What is God trying to teach us? And God is doing a work in their lives. And by the time we get to the end of this story in this series, there will be restoration in the family. There will be leadership in the family. There will be life change that takes place in the family. But God is doing incremental change. You know, perhaps Michelangelo's most famous work is the statue of David. How many of you have ever seen the statue of David? I think we have a picture this morning. It's considered to be one of the greatest pieces of art of all time. And Michelangelo actually talked about this uh, statue, and he said this, and as I read this, would you join me in standing this morning? People asked Michelangelo about this piece of art, this statue, and he said this. In every block of marble, I see a statue as plain as though it stood before me. In other words, he said, I envision it. Shaped and perfect in attitude and action. I have only to hew away the rough walls that imprison the lovely apparition to reveal it to the other eyes as mine see it. In other words, Michelangelo was saying this, I cut away anything that doesn't resemble David. I'm gonna chip away anything that doesn't resemble David. Can I encourage you today that God is molding us, he is shaping us, he is pruning us, and he is chipping away anything that does not look like his son Jesus because that is the goal of life, to know Jesus and to become more like Jesus. This is the sanctification process. First Corinthians says that we are changed, transformed into his image. Now, how do we do that? Well, I wanna encourage you today, refuse to live in the realm of indecision, (laughs) to take action, to actually practice what it is that you possess and profess, and then allow God to awaken conscience and let the Holy Spirit do a work that only the Holy Spirit can do in your life. But Let's have a word of prayer together today as we close. Before we pray, I'd like to ask a few simple questions this morning.